Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we will be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policymakers, and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. We'll be delving into and analyzing the latest news, which include things like tech, geopolitics, finance, economics, leadership, entrepreneurship, property, law, philanthropy, and of course, life. Uh, This podcast is available on all platforms. But for those of you who prefer to watch, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews there. You can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Please leave a review as that does help in getting the word out and about. Uh, My name is Ninda Joho. I'm the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Awards and co-publisher of the Business Influencer magazine. And I will be your host for the show. In this episode, we speak to Vikas Shah MBE, a high-profile entrepreneur who discusses the role of entrepreneurship in society. He firmly believes that giving back to society is as important as building a successful business. He also draws upon insights gained from interviewing those who are shaping the century. These include Nobel Prize winners, business leaders, politicians, artists, Olympians, in his new book, a real fantastic read, called Thought Economics. Vikas gives us a fresh perspective on the role of capitalism in society. This really is worth a listen. Evening, Vikas. Hope you are well. Um, Is it raining in Manchester? That's my question. Well, we, we've got one of our very rare sunny days today. So everyone in Manchester's wandering around, looking at the sky, wondering what this big glowing orb is. But it's it's nice. It puts everyone in a good mood. Well, well, it's extraordinary because it's raining here, and it is in Birmingham. And the extraordinary thing is Manchester's known for its rain. We, we, we never quite understood how it managed to get its cricket going because of the rain. But you're <laughs> telling me it's not raining. But uh, welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, because Thank um, you for having me. And no, it's fantastic. You're an entrepreneur. Uh, you're an investor. We just spoke about private equity a few seconds ago. And you're a philanthropist. Um, you, listen, your bio is extensive, so I do apologize. I'm going to have to give a shortened version. Otherwise, we could take up. So here's my shortened version, um, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Yeah. You started your first business at 14. You're currently the CEO of Swisscott Group which is in textiles and commodities trading. Yeah. Uh, you're a non-exec director at the UK government's business, energy and industrial strategy. Incidentally, we had um, Greg Clark on a couple of podcasts ago, and he, yeah. was, the, uh, he was the architect of the industrial strategy. Uh, you're a non-exec director of the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, which sounds exciting. Uh, you're, um, you're a visiting professor at the MIT Sloan Lisbon MBA, you're also an honorary professorship at the University of Manchester. And I know there's a couple of other universities. You're a committed philanthropist, chair of the In Place of War, the International Peacebuilding and Entrepreneurship NGO with 100 grassroots uh, community organizations with amazing collective reach of 60 million. Yeah. You're an MBA uh, for service to the business of the economy on the 2018 honors list. And just recently, you were appointed Deputy Lieutenant of the Greater Manchester Lieutenancy because I don't know whether to stand up or salute you. Neither, neither, because you, you, my friend, looking through your bio, I am, I am equally honoured to meet you. So, so neither is the best, the best approach. <laughs> Very kind of you. Now, the reason we've got you here, apart from your glowing bio, is you're actually a author, uh, and you've just recently published a book called Thought Economics. So if you thought what it, what I've already said about him wasn't impressive enough, you have to read his book. Uh, and, and it's amazing because it features the interviews with some of the most extraordinary people. Yeah. Shaping, as you say in your book, shaping our century. Uh, these include Nobel Prize winners, business leaders, politicians, artists, Olympians. And in particular, um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a comprehensive book, but with the time permitting, um, we're going to focus on the yeah. leadership and the business angle, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, 
So let me kick in straight away. Um, I did mention your journey into entrepreneurship was quite early. So <laughs> you're an entrepreneur. We've heard about your philanthropy and everything. So describe your early entries so people get an idea of your entrepreneurship journey. And then if you could round that off with, you're not a journalist. So where did the idea yeah. of the book come from? So entrepreneurship and how you ended up as, a, as, as an author. Great. Well, I think... The, the entrepreneurship journey was a little odd for me. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur until somebody kind of, you know, politely told me I was one. And then I was kind of like, well, I wonder what that means. And, and the reason is, you know, gr growing up, we, we grew up right next to um, at Manchester Airport. And so, you know, watching the planes go by the house every day, all I ever wanted to do was be a pilot. That was it. There was, there was no negotiation for me on that dream. And, um, yeah, it's a really expensive thing to go and do. And so when I was kind of 13, 14, and you're trying to figure out what you want to do, I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to join the Air Force. I've got glasses. It's, it's you know, the, the family, were, you know, we were doing fine, but we weren't in a position to um, pay for me to go and <laughs> do these expensive flying lessons. So I thought, okay, well, let me figure something out. And at the time, I'd... You know, I'd been teaching myself how to do, you know, basic bits of coding and design on computers. So, so I thought I'd just pick up a yellow pages and ring businesses and go, hey, you know, I'll um, build your website or I'll do some design work for you. And I charged them 50 pounds, which was a lot of money for a 13, 14 year old. And the plan was really simple. So every two jobs I did would pay for one flying lesson. That was the plan, right? <laughs> and then um, what I hadn't really figured was that this was the start of the dot-com, well, the first dot-com bubble. And I, I obviously, you know, young, naive kid, I hadn't seen that. So fast forward to the time that I was now 16. Um, I now had actual employees in Manchester, New York, London, and Sydney. I'm still at school. It was kind of, it was kind of strange. Although weirdly, it sounds strange in retrospect, right? So if I look back on it, I'm like, oh, that was really weird. But at the time, you know, you're a naive young kid, like, you don't see it as weird. You're just cracking on. And, and, and that was really the journey that, that started this whole new chapter of life for me, where I realized that I had this passion for this thing that I didn't expect. And that thing was business. And, you know, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because you're a business person until your business is big enough for you to be called an entrepreneur. So, so I became an entrepreneur. And, um, and I guess part of that journey, you know, we, we, were, we built the system called the Flatpak Web. And the Flatpak Web was one of the earliest content management systems ever built. It, oh, was, right. it was kind of, yeah, and it was it was well before WordPress and things like that. And what, one of the reasons we built it is we actually had our own um, online magazine portfolio back when online magazines weren't really a thing. And I just enjoyed writing. You know, we just reviewed games and software, and it was it was one of those things that kind of just held the team together in the business because it was fun, and that included me. And um, so that, that business, you know, came to a, a, a rather abrupt end when that first dot-com bubble burst. But I'd all, and that was something that I'd always missed was that, that writing and just, just that publishing component. And so fast forward to kind of, you know, 2000, I guess 2005, 2007, that kind of time. And when the business model of publishing was changing, I kind of thought, I miss that long form. I miss long form interviews. I miss these big, long articles that I love reading. So I literally set up a blog called thoughteconomics.blogspot.com and started to interview kind of interesting people I'd met over the years, you know, no, nobody like as a household name. And then one day I just thought, well, there's a big wide world out there, you know, who else can I get to? Three months later, I'm on the phone to Buzz Aldrin and the, the kind of rest is history. And that was the birth of Thought Economics. Wow. And, and, and I remember your, your father was wondering what you were doing and, and, and couldn't believe some of the caliber of people yeah. that you were interviewing. I mean, I, it's, I mean, I've got the book here. Uh, for those of you who obviously can't see it on audio, it's, I mean, some of the names on here are just extraordinary. You've got, um, I mean, the one I was, well, you got um, David Bailey, you've got... Um, yeah, he was awesome. Uh, I mean, we, we love our music, Mr. Hans Rimmer. Rimmer he, he's, he's in there. You've got Richard Branson in there. You've got, yeah. you've got some amazing... Carlo Ancelotti, the Everton managers in there, talking about leadership and humanity, and Alistair Campbell's in there. And you've got some uh, extraordinary names. Uh, I mean, Kieran 
Mazumdu Shaw, who's going to be our next cover on the Business Influencer yeah. magazine. And you've got some amazing names in. Of course, people must have said, how did you, how did you manage that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's odd because I really, really wish I had some smart, resolved answer for you, right? I really wish I could sit there and go, well, you know, over the years I've developed this complex strategy for how to get hold of people. But the truth is, a, a lot of it is just asking. You know, those early interviews, the early interviews I did, I didn't have any pedigree. I didn't have a, I'm not a journalist. I didn't write for a big newspaper or publication. I just got very lucky in the early days that a few high profile people gave me a chance and said, wow. cool, yeah, well, let, let's, let's give you some time. And, and that's always been the approach because weirdly, even though Thought Economics has become this big thing now and it's become this you know, really massive part of my life that I didn't expect, it's still in my mind something I consider a, you know, a hobby in some ways, so there's no yeah. pressure. Yeah. And as a result of that, I can make more approaches because, you know, this is your, you know, this is your world, you know, you, you, you do this as a business. And so you know that, you know, when you're reaching out to people for interviews, A, it's often no, B, it's often scheduled months and months in advance. And yeah, then, you right. know, sometimes it doesn't happen anyway. But, but because I've always kept it in that hobby territory, I'll just keep trying, just keep trying, just keep trying. And, you know, eventually you get some interesting people. I'd say that for every person that says yes, there's at least 10, 15 that yeah. have said no or didn't reply. But but you, this is going to sound really odd, but it's just like sales in business. You know, every every, every business that I've launched, as, as a founder, one of the first things you do is sell. You know, you've got to start to bring in yeah. those early contracts and those first customers to validate your business. And the biggest part of sales is people telling you no. It's people telling you, yeah. I'm not interested or just not replying. And so you kind of build the resilience to it. So I guess I learned the art of it just from selling and from, from my own business and then applied it to this slightly different world. Fantastic. Well, look, let's, let's drill, into the, drill into the book. Um, so let's look at role of entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to reel the names off yet because I want you to sort of drop some gems in here, but entrepreneurs you said you'd never heard the word when you were first asked at school um and a lot of people particularly recently it's the name is maligned uh, there's some yeah. there's been some seriously bad examples of of business practice uh, they're seen as greedy and occasionally and unreliable but some of your some of your interviews including people like branson robin lee and dyson gave some great answers as to the role of an entrepreneur, what their function is in business. Maybe you can elaborate and maybe you tell me what you think of the role of an entrepreneur is in society. So it's kind of odd, like there's the, the, the weird paradox that I found in entrepreneurship is this, which is I've never met anyone who's made lots and lots of money who was interested in making lots and lots of money in business, right? Most people that I know in business that have made lots and lots of money had a passion for something and it just so happened that because of luck, timing and hard work, that turned into a big fancy business and made them lots of money. Um, and it's one of those things where the, the general, you know, when you, when you see entrepreneurship on TV, you often get this impression that that's not the case. But yeah. I very rarely found that to be untrue. I very rarely found that entrepreneurs are genuinely motivated by money. Although, let's be honest, if you want to run a successful business, that's part of it. But... That's, yep. that's very rarely the absolute. And, but, but speaking to, you know, people like you mentioned, like Branson, Steve Ballmer, Dyson, a lot of these individuals, the deep seated passion for what they do came through, you know, and it might be a passion for changing the world, like Steve Ballmer, where it's like, I want to compute on every desktop. I want Microsoft to be this giant business. I want it to be, make a difference. It might be this absolute obsession with engineering like James Dyson who went through over yeah. you know a few thousand prototypes before he built the first vacuum so it's that kind of obsessive passion mixed with vision that really characterized the, the, the people I spoke to I think the other two things there's first of all resilience which is yeah. you know having the mental and physical resilience to actually embark on that journey which is which is kind of critical and I wish that was taught more in business schools and and it's also just having that 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 real 
emotional intelligence to build teams, to motivate people to lead. You know, it's very opposite to what we see in things like The Apprentice and Dragon's Den. It's, it's you know, those are those are entertainment, and that's often not the reality of how business is. Well, take taking uh, the teams bit, and, and we'll pick that up when we look at leadership, particularly when we talk about leadership. So why is it you think um, the schools, and, and I say that because you understand the academic world quite well, why have the schools never picked up the importance of entrepreneurship to society? It, it just doesn't pop up anywhere, yeah. does it? And, 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 and therefore, uh, people's only impression of entrepreneurship is, as you said, is TV, which is not really what actually yeah. happens. So, so, so how much are the schools to blame here? And maybe the government who sets the agenda for... So I don't think I don't think it's necessarily about blame. I think it's about what's important for society at that given time. You know, for, for, for most business schools have been producing high caliber people who go and work in corporations, do well, you know, take leadership roles in different organizations yeah. and consulting and banking. And that's fine. You know, that, that, that's been important. And it's only really in the last maybe five, six, five to 10 years that we've had this kind of renaissance of, 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 of business ownership and startups, particularly in, in the UK to, any, to, to the extent that we have. You know, US business schools have been a bit earlier to the game with this naturally, but you know, as there is more capital available to start businesses, as there is more capital available to scale businesses, it's natural there's gonna be more interest, but more significantly than that, it's, you need an environment such that the best minds are encouraged to start businesses. And we, and we do have that now. We have an environment where the very, very, very best minds can go and do their PhD, go and cut their teeth in a business and then think, okay, now I want to build something. So they can go and do an MBA, study and, and, and build. So, so entrepreneurship is becoming more of a part of, of, of those kind of elite degree programs. The other side of it is, I think, people now have a much more holistic understanding of what entrepreneurship is. So what I mean is, it's not about business, right? So it doesn't matter what you yeah. do for a living. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, a banker, whatever. But entrepreneurship is just a set of life skills that allow you to be adaptable, to think innovatively, to, to, to understand how the world works in a way that you can make things happen. So it doesn't matter what you do for a living, those life skills are very important. But it was interesting uh, when Balmer, uh, sorry, Balmer, the, the Microsoft guy, spoke yeah. about entrepreneurship. Obviously, now we people talk about entrepreneurship. In other words, you can be an entrepreneur within an organization. And, and, and you're right, entrepreneurship is all about, I mean, take, it took a while for people to understand the role of the social entrepreneur. And that's become now quite a powerful term because it's the same ability to think out the box to have the passion, the vision, the drive, all the things you spoke about earlier, but actually the main beneficiary, we hope, is gonna be society and those people who operate and work within the business. I mean, and, and, social so, entrepreneurship's, a, yeah, I mean, social entrepreneurship's a curious thing, isn't it? Because I still find it quite odd that we lump social entrepreneurship into the charity world in terms of general generalized perceptions yeah. of it. When social entrepreneurs are, as much entrepreneurs as anyone else. It's just that they have, their businesses have a double bottom line. They're measuring social impact, not just financial impact. And, and actually we, we're doing them a disservice by not realizing that they are what they are. Now, I am very convinced that the next batch of world's wealthiest people will be social entrepreneurs. And, wow. and, 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 and I hope I'm not proven wrong about that. Well. Wow. And, 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 and just while we're at it, because you interviewed quite a few people, did you notice, uh, did you notice a different tone when it came to talking to American entrepreneurs versus British entrepreneurs? Or was there no cultural difference? Just, just, there just was interesting. The, the American, so, so the American entrepreneurs clearly exhibited much, much higher levels of emotional intelligence, I think, in terms of, how they understood themselves and others. And, 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 you, and you see that when you go over there, you know, when I had my first business, I was lucky enough to, you know, we, we really spent a lot of time in the States then because we had some clients there and, 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 and infrastructure and all sorts. And it was really interesting that 
American business people were much happier talking about emotion, much more happy talking about heart, about spirit, about, you know, who they are and all these things, which sometimes can be considered a bit fluffy for us, you know, <laughs> opposite side of the Atlantic folk. But it's really important because you lead with emotion. You lead by understanding other people. And that's often how US businesses are able to scale so much bigger than their counterparts in Europe you know, because they just have much more adaptable, much more intelligent to you, to, for want of a better phrase, leadership. Extraordinary. I'll I, I tell you ask that question because I see that uh, when I go on to Clubhouse, I don't know if you've ever been on Clubhouse, the social media It's app. an odd place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, you can see it clearly exhibited um, when, when you're in Clubhouse. Now, you said you've been to America, and and obviously we used to hear about the old schools boys network. So, so to what extent did you find in your interviews that networking or your network, and some people call it yeah. your network, to what extent was that important? Because Will I, who you interviewed, said it was yeah. critical. Listen, it, your network is one of the most important things you'll ever have with you as a, as a founder, right? And it's really important that we start to think sensibly about network because I, I see loads of people on LinkedIn who think network is the fact that they've got 10,000 connections on LinkedIn. Yeah. Like yeah. that's irrelevant. You know, it's really, you know, any, any idiot can go and make 50,000 LinkedIn connections with enough time and enough patience. It's not hard, right? A network is the group of people around you who are not directly connected to your business, who can who you can call on and ask them to do something or they can ask you to do something. So it's people who can help you build. It's people who you can call and say, look, I need someone to do this. I need an opinion. I need access to capital. You know, that's a real network. And so for me, you know, I've, I've had to split that into two, two buckets, if you like. So yes, you know, because I've been able to achieve, you know, you know, nowhere near the kind of public profile of many of the guests that you've had on in the magazine, but I've got, you know, a small little public profile in my own way. And so, yeah. you know, I've got my kind of lots of connections world there, but that's more just me broadcasting to that world if they're interested yeah. to hear from me. But then my actual network's really tight. It's probably, you know, I can probably count it on two hands. That That's the people around me who I know I can call on when I need to and when I need to build. And, and it works, you know, the several ventures I've launched over the years where, you know, I've, I've been able to pick up the phone to two or three people and go, look, I'm thinking about doing this. Can you help? Are you in? And people come together. It's quality of tight, close relationships. That's the power of network, not the kind of abstract, many connections world that people think it is today. And, and, and so therefore what you've done there, I, I think it's a fantastic insight, is understanding what we mean by the word network. Because you're right, all we see on social media is you've got a network, you've got a network, and they talk about pretty well random type of networking where you just go to an event and go to as so, many events as you can, but you're, you're giving it a totally different slant. So network and audience are different, right? So, so you, you know, so you have a network of people that you can call on, but you also have your audience who, who you speak to. And this is confusing, but I think the other thing is, it's confusing networking with work, as in there's so many startup entrepreneurs that I meet who and I'm going to use the word waste, they waste so much time going to event after event after event after event, but they're not actually getting on with the work of building their business or building their service or proving what they do. And so you can, you can persuade yourself by being busy networking that you're working when you really aren't. So I often say to people, equate it in terms of time. Like, you know, as if, if you had to pay someone to do your job as a founder, like for argument's sake, let's say you had to pay a founder to come into your business that was going to cost you £100,000 a year. Now evaluate your time. Would you want that founder doing what you're doing? If the answer to that question is no, then you're not doing the right thing. It's that simple. Now, interesting in your book, um, and I'm going to refer to a chap called Steve Case, who's the chair of AOL. And, and his argument was that it's great having ideas. Listen, without ideas, you don't get very far. And, and of course, we know all about the entrepreneurs that have generated brilliant ideas. Dyson, yeah. 
Jobs, Elon Musk, big visionaries, big ideas. But Steve Case argues it's the execution that matters. So what type of person is it that can execute? I mean, what sort of, what did you get out of some of your interviews that said, this is a person you could tell they executed? I know you've talked about uh, uh, emotional intelligence, but were there any obvious traits that, yeah, this was the execution yeah. that got this, this idea into fruition? So you've got to validate what you do early. And again, I'm going to draw on a difference between different sides of the Atlantic. So if I took two founders and, you know, over the years, I've kind of been lucky enough to mentor like lots and lots of business founders in different sectors. And if I look at founders in the UK, there's there's definitely a sense of, OK, well, I'm going to make you sign three layers of NDA, then I'll talk to you. But I'm not going to talk to anybody else because they might steal my idea and blah, 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 yeah. blah. And it's, it's all a bit cloak and dagger in the US. They're like, here's what I'm doing. Do you want to be part of the journey? I just want you to bring, I want to bring people with me. And, and, and the difference might seem comical in some ways, but it's not. Execution requires people. It requires momentum. It requ- you know, very, nobody can really execute a business on their own. So when Steve Case founded AOL, you know, he was out there saying, here's what I'm doing. Do you want to come with me on the journey? Building a team, building momentum, validating. And that means you've got to be open about what you do. You know, in all these years, I've never genuinely seen somebody steal a business idea. But what I have seen is the fact that people have been too slow to launch a business idea. And a good enough idea will be in several people's heads at once. It's one of those things. So so to execute, you've got to realize that speed is important, first and foremost. If, because if you think something's a good idea, there'll be somebody in another city who's also thinking it's a good idea. And secondly... You've got to keep having conversations. You've got to keep trying to bring people with you on the journey because that team, that fan base, that initial user base, those are the people that are going to make your business what it is. And you're absolutely right. I've seen some great ideas, completely paralyzed because they don't like talking about them and and, and no one then invests because uh, I remember there's one instance somebody said there, is a wealthy billionaire he said if you're going to keep throwing ndas at me i'm just not interested you either tell me the idea or i'm just not interested and and, and he would walk away the moment uh, somebody said nda he'd walk yeah. away because he, he wouldn't want the legal action afterwards uh, because somebody said well i sent you an nda and you, this happened so they just walk away i mean there's a time and a place for that kind of thing you know like for example we know we, we've sold plenty of businesses and bought plenty of businesses over the years and in that situation of course you need it you know you've got to be protected but if you're a founder you know and, and i'm kind of being very specific around founders and startups here you, you've just got to bring as many people as you can with you on the journey when your business is established and you know you're you're, you're at a point where there is value to protect then it's different but, you know, it's that classic phrase of when, you talk, when you're kind of, you know, counseling entrepreneurs about giving up equity, you know, it's better to own 10% of a billion yeah. than all of nothing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a common, common barrier, common barrier yeah. to growth yeah. is that entrepreneurs are not willing to trade some of that equity in return for growth. And that, Correct. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, has been, has been around for centuries. Uh, picking up innovation, uh, clearly... The, with technology innovations happening much, 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 much quicker. So, so one of your entrepreneurs, uh, Kieran Shaw, says, uh, it's all about new ideas. Uh, I don't believe in copying, and I don't think you're an entrepreneur if you copy. If you take Sam, Sam Walton, I read his book recently, and he will tell you all he did was copy. He would go into yeah. other retailers and just copy. Did you get a sense from your interviews which way people swung? I, I, so, so you know, I think people were very firmly on either side of that, right? Okay. But, but to me, to me personally, I think both are true to the extent that you know, someone like Ryanair, you know, there's no, there was no, there was no, nothing secret about how you run an airline. Yeah. You know, you yeah. buy planes, you fill in with passengers, and you keep it moving, right? But it was the service innovation, which is where Ryanair really made a tremendous difference, and. The same thing's true of something like like Walmart. You know, no, it's not rocket science how you set how you build a shop. It's not rocket science how you sell product or what people are buying. 
But the innovation bit is doing it in a way at scale. Nobody had scaled retail the way the Waltons did, right? That's innovation. That's business model innovation rather than product innovation. But then on the flip side, you might have people you know, who are genuinely building brand new technologies. So, so you've got to think of innovation more as this kind of continuum that starts with kind of business models and, and you know, that, if you like, more spreadsheet-based innovation at one end through to the kind of eureka moments in a lab where all of a sudden you've got a new product that you never realized you would. They're all innovation in their own way. Um, but naturally, whatever whatever kind of makes your own brain fire up is the bit that you will most resonate with. You know, like for me, I like I, I kind of like creating things that are new. So that's yeah. for me what I enjoy. But nevertheless, you know, in many of our businesses, service model innovations just as valid. Now just quickly changing tack a bit, and it's almost referring to the role of entrepreneurs and business in society. Uh, and we spoke about this before as well, the role of philanthropy. Now, you do commit a lot of time to this. I mean, I read only some of the stuff you do. Um, so, so why do you think philanthropy is important? And why would you encourage business leaders and entrepreneurs to commit some time? And, and you did discuss this in your book as well. I think if you had a table of people for dinner and if you had 10 people around at your house for dinner and if five of the people at the table had no food, you, you, you'd, I don't think it would take a particularly cold hearted person to not share or to not, or to not give something. Right. Yeah. And that's how our world is, you know, for every me or you who, who is comfortable and doing fine, there's, five other people who aren't and maybe 10 other people who never got the chance. And, and it's not that that's unfair. It just is what it is. Right. And I feel like if I'm not leaving my little corner of the world a bit better off during my time, like if I'm not leaving the room a bit cleaner than when I went in, what's the point? I'm just wasting energy and wasting resource and, that's not that's that's no benefit for the world is it so so for me there's that kind of deep i guess i guess a deep sense of i, I need to leave my little part of the world a bit better than the one that i found and and that's kind of what drives me but at the same time you know the value that we extract as business owners you know through you know the generation of of, of wealth if you like that comes at a cost you know, the, the wealth that we make is the wealth of society. And yes, we provide jobs and yes, we, we do all those other things. But at the same time, the value that you extract into your account can make a massive difference elsewhere as well. And so you need to balance your perspective and realize that, you know, there is somewhat of an obligation on you as someone who's been able to generate value to cycle some of that value back into society to give the rest of the world a better chance to move forward. And Yes, charity starts at home. All those things are true, but you are not just the product of the immediate people around you. You are not just the product of your business. You are the product of a society that supported you to get where you are. And so you have an obligation to that society. And I find it really sad when people don't see that. What did you find? Um, and by the way, I totally agree that I'm gonna bring another point in. Um, what did you find with the people you interviewed in the book, how did they veer? Did they sort of concur with you or were they, I'm just too busy and... The vast majority of people I've interviewed from in entrepreneurship, from every industry, from every background, were, were engaged in philanthropy in one form or another. You know, it's it, it was pretty concurrent. I, I, I didn't really come across people who weren't. And, and yet... In the real world, I do come across lots of people who have the means but don't. And, and, and I do find that quite troubling sometimes. You know, I think it's also natural that I will probably gravitate more towards people who are a bit like me in my world outlook when I'm interviewing them. So I think that there is an inherent bias in that. But I, I didn't really speak to many people who don't engage in society that way because I suspect I probably wouldn't have got on with them well enough to do an interview. <laughs> Well, what's also extraordinary, you and I spoke about, is understanding the role, 
because uh, a lot of people just write a check out, don't they? They say, well, here's my bit. I'm give, here's my check. But actually, you and I spoke. Philanthropy can be actually interpreted in a totally different way. It may not necessarily involve a check. Yeah. So when you're, you know, the same skills that, that you use to build a business can wrap, can have a remarkable impact on, on another organization. And, you know, don't get me wrong, for a lot of nonprofits, the check's really important because they need it for core funds and to keep things moving. But at the same time, you know, your, your, your contact book, your, your resources, the things your business can do, your insight as a leader, your understanding of finance, you know, all those things are just as important. And for many organizations, having the listening ear of a business person, having trustees, having board members, those things are just as important as people cutting a check. And a good way to find this out is to just have conversations with them. You know, don't go in with this big sort of shiny approach of, oh, I'm this big important person and I would love to help you, oh, meek charity. You know, most of the charities that I've worked with you know, with a couple of exceptions, I basically just went along and volunteered, got to know people, just tried to get to understand what they do, what makes them tick, and then, and then figured out how can I make a difference there. And it might be a check, it might be time, who knows? But but you need to learn it, you need to understand it. Well, what was um, extraordinary when I, when I talked to a few charities, you're absolutely right because they don't mention money. They'd say we need a skill set. We need somebody who understands this, this, this. And they really do look for people in business. They genuinely want people from business on their board to give that insight, that skill set that they've built over the years. And and and, and the response I get to, to some people, if uh, listen, there are people who are saying we're happy to do it. And, and other people are just saying, don't have the time. So I suppose, Vikas, I'm going to throw this at you. How do you find the time? Because you're, the amount of roles you've got so, so, so here's the truth. How, how do you manage that then? So, so here's the truth. Every, every hour you spend on something comes at a cost, right? So, so spending an hour doing this is an hour that I'm not doing something else. And that something else might be something quite mundane, like sitting on my sofa watching crap TV, or it might be, <laughs> you know, looking on LinkedIn for the next deal. And, and I think for a lot of people, they, they're sat there thinking, well, if I give a few hours to charity here and there, that's time I could be spending on my business. And that's yeah. completely true. It is. Yeah. And so, so you have to realize that there is a sacrifice. Like, you know, if I didn't split my life the way I do, perhaps I'd be wealthier. Perhaps I'd have a nicer house and a shinier car or whatever. But so what? Because doesn't matter how big my house is or how shiny my car is though you know next man's got an even bigger house and yeah. even shinier car and that's right you know it's yeah. that's not the contest to be in yeah that's that's you're never gonna win it doesn't matter who you are yeah. you know you i i have had friends who have you know spent 30 40 million dollars on a private jet and landed somewhere and felt emasculated because the other person has got a 60 million dollar private jet you know what, what what kind of contest is that to be in yeah whereas yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah absolutely right and, yeah absolutely right absolutely right there's always somebody who's got a bigger car and a bigger house and a bigger jet you're absolutely right I, i'm not admonishing having nice things because we all like nice things you know yeah. but but it's figuring out what what is the contest that really matters what is the race that really matters and and making sure that you're just running that race well I, I, I think it's also important and I completely agree with you that a business is important for society and, and its community but a community is also important for business because that's where you get your employees that's where you get your your yeah. sales you get everything from that same community who also benefit so it's a pretty linked, it's it's a close link, and, and and I think if you can play, and I completely agree with you, if you can play a role in making that society even better than it is today, and it may not necessarily be a check, it may be just your time. Be amazed how people are really grateful for that. So I'm completely with you. Now, just moving that along, then 
it's about leadership. And, and a lot of the stuff you've been speaking about now is really about leadership. So, so let me move on to another chapter in your, in your fantastic book. And it's, it's an unbelievably brilliant read, by the way. I was, Thank uh, you. was completely intrigued. I would, yeah, let's talk about leadership then. Um, can entrepreneurs be leaders, good leaders? Can they be? And, and, and before you answer, let me, ask the, let me tell you why I say that. Um, entrepreneurs tend to be extremely focused, extremely driven, um, whilst to have a big vision, they've also got the detail today. They know what needs doing. And, and in some people's eyes, they may not have the emotional intelligence to have got where they have. So, so we'll talk about entrepreneurs generally, and then we'll talk about leadership. In, mm. in the, do you think entrepreneurs don't necessarily make good leaders? I think if you want to be, I think if you want to succeed in entrepreneurship, you have to be. And even if that's not who you are, you can learn the skills of leadership. You can learn, you know, how to temper yourself and how to lead others and empower others. Because there's, there's far too many businesses where that kind of archetypal entrepreneur that you described is the person at the helm. And those businesses have a very narrow pyramid. So there's one or two people at the top who do everything. And then lots of low paid people who do the menial stuff that they just can't get around to doing. And those businesses aren't resilient because founder dies, business is dead. You know, it's, it's not a good way to run a business. Whereas every business that I, I'm involved in, I, it has to pass something which I kind of lovingly call the London bus test, which is if I cross the road today and get hit by a bus, nothing should change tomorrow in the office, apart from maybe there's a new spare desk. That's it, right? And you only achieve that kind of resilience in a business when you temper yourself as an individual and realize that you've got to surround yourself with people better than you, empower them to do the job and conduct them in the art of doing that, right? So that entrepreneur who thinks that they're razor focused and has their eye on the detail and all this, I tend to find that actually that comes from a position of insecurity because the minute your business gets to a certain size, you can't have your eye on that much detail. No one can, right? So if you think you have, A, you don't, you're wrong, and that's dangerous. And secondly, it comes from a position often of, 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 of insecurity where you think, I can't have people better than me, so I have to be in charge of everything. And that, again, is a deeply unhealthy perspective to have. So I, I do see that perspective a lot, unfortunately. I see a lot of business owners who are like yeah. that and a lot of business owners who want to be that kind of archetypal, you know, lead with an iron fist and what I say goes, but that only gets you so far in business and you get low staff retention, you don't scale very well. And it's, it's not a healthy place to be as a business leader. So I think to be an entrepreneur, you have to learn the skills of leadership, whether you like it or not. You have to practice them. You have to get good at them. And there's, there's really no exception. Did you, um, when you were interviewing people and, and you spoke definitely about the distinction between uh, British Reserve and American exuberance. Um, you said in your book, fantastically, you said, um, when I was at school uh, at a young age, you felt there was no way were you leadership material. In fact, you said something like, out of a, out of a, out of a school of a, a class of 32, you'd probably come 30 or 31 at the bottom. So, so I suppose I know you said it can't be learned but to, to, to what extent is it important for a leader then, and I talk about the emotional intelligence, the difference of having charisma, is, is that really important? Because if you look at politics, leaders are now seen as those who are seen to be charismatic. I think you have to, you have to particularly now in business, you have to realise that the, the, the personality that you project matters more than it ever did before because it tends to be the case that however small or big your business is, now as a business founder, you're far more visible than you ever were before. And your, your business is much more about human interaction, about recruitment, about building relationships. There's, there's a whole new set of skills that, that apply in business now that require you to work on, on your own emotional presence, how you communicate, how you communicate with clarity, how you do public speaking. You know, all those things are now an essential part of the toolkit, right? Politicians obviously are kind of really up there 
you know, whatever side you're on, whatever party you follow, the top politicians are extremely good at that. And that's what makes them who they are, right? And you see that in businesses too. So, so I, I think it's something that every business leader has to work on now, how you communicate, how you communicate well, how you hold attention, how you inspire people. You know, these things aren't fluffy phrases anymore. They're a reality. You know, I've, I've got friends who've got businesses, you know, kind of micro businesses with only a handful of employees and they have to do the same. It's something we all have to do. And it's not even about being comfortable with it. I, I um, people describe me as an extrovert, but I'm not. You know, I'm genuinely quite an introverted person. I tend to not. I feel quite happy in my own company, right? Yeah. I'm not a big socializer, whatever. But it's tough. If I want to get ahead in my job, I need to be comfortable with that and find ways of getting comfortable with that. In the book, particularly in the chapter around leadership, uh, you did focus on the military quite a bit. Yeah. And you, got, and you got quite a few generals and people in high. So what was it about the military that you felt when it came to leadership, you definitely had to go to people in the military yeah. to get a perspective and an insight on leadership? So why the military? What did they give so, you? You thought the others perhaps couldn't? Well, Well, one thing the military gave me was literally the single best job title I've got in the book, which is which is a gentleman whose job title is Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. I mean, it doesn't get better sure. than that, right? But I, I kind of on a serious note, I mean, when I was thinking about leadership, what occurred to me is that whatever the environment is, the principle is the same, which is you as the individual need to get a group of people to follow you on a journey, right? So, you know, you've got a group of people that work for you in the magazines and in your businesses. You need them to follow your vision and, 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 and be part of that journey. What is the most extreme possible environment that that happens? And it's the military, because in the military, you are, you know, as much as these individuals are extraordinarily well trained, you're leading them into, you know, objectively dangerous situations. You're leading them into literal life and death situations. You are leading them into conflicts that they may not agree with. You're, you're making them do things which they may not even realize or, or perceive that they can or should do. That's a very extreme leadership environment. And if they can do it and do it well and do it well at scale, then we can yeah. all learn from that. You know, the military is, is like the biggest corporation you've ever seen. They have every department a business does. And military leaders have to be the most adept communicators. They are highly emotionally intelligent. They get it because what they do has real consequences. And so they've had to hone that art, which is why I find the military to be such an incredible proxy to learn the art of leadership. I mean, there was some amazing stuff. One quote, which I thought was extraordinary, in COVID times, was one of the interviews, and I forget the name, said, yes, you've got to persuade and influence people to do things you want them to do. But he said, and I think you just mentioned it a second ago, but you've got to make the environment in which they work in such that leadership becomes easier. Now, you wrote this book, if I remember, because I saw a few references to COVID and pandemic. Um, so if, if the environment is important, to what extent do you think the lack of an environment, if you understand what I'm now saying, people working from home, how, did you find anybody say anything about how leadership suddenly was more difficult? Because you know you, they're not there with you. you. You now can't see them in the environment you used to. Did anybody refer to COVID and making leadership difficult? So, so not, not, not perhaps, not specifically in the book, but there's a lot of business leaders that, that I know who have had different experiences of this, right? Where the less, so, so one of the people I interviewed recently, who's not, not in the book actually, because I mean, I literally interviewed them last week was as the founder of Gymshark. And he made a really good point, which was an entrepreneur has to be the most adaptable person in the room, right? And it's so true. So if you have a leadership style and that's it, then the pandemic hits, you're screwed, right? Because your Monday morning team briefing doesn't work anymore because not everyone can get together in the same room. But the, the people that I know that have really succeeded through it have realized that, okay, 
we're now in this new situation. So now I have to approach leadership differently. I have to be able to motivate my teams differently. I have to be able to do my one-to-ones differently. I have to be able to lead my company differently. I have to use technology differently. So, so the people that have succeeded in this have been the most adaptive to it and the most adaptable to it rather. And, and that takes some courage because you're experimenting at that point, right? Because a lot of people never did kind of, you know, company all hands. They never did town halls. They never did kind of whole company mails and letters and newsletters. And they've had to experiment to figure out what works, but that takes courage. And, it, and, and as long as you approach it with an open heart and transparency, your team will believe in you. How did you find, um, because I, I was really very carefully to Carlo and Salotti um, uh, answers, how did you find leadership styles were different from the ultimate position, your scale, which is the military, versus managing talent? Because if you take a football manager in the premiership, they're managing a different type of person. Uh, you know, these are extremely talented people. And did he give an insight into his sort of leadership style, which was perhaps the same or different from the military? Because there's two so, different scenarios. So, so the, basic, the basic principle is very similar, which is giving your team a vision for what success means, right? So if you're managing a football team, then the metric of success is you win. And that has to be your North Star. That's it. That's all that matters. And as a leader, you need to be there to be able to support people when they don't win, but not wrap them in cotton wool, as in, we didn't win. Here are the consequences of that. And you need to take responsibility for that. But here's what we do to move forward. But notwithstanding that is getting people to focus on what is the absolute vision for that particular interaction. So in the military, it might be, we are here to execute this mission. In sports, it's, we are here to win, right? And so many leaders, unfortunately, can't articulate what that vision is. They can't articulate what is the vision and the purpose of that team being there? What's uniting them together? What are they all aiming at and driving at together? And if you can't do that, you need to figure out either what's wrong with the business or you need to figure out what's wrong with your understanding of your team, because you have to be able to articulate that very clearly. In the book, um, you refer to coping with failure, and you ask people, how do you cope with failure? So whether it's entrepreneurship or leadership. And let me ask you, Vikas, um, I don't know if you've had any failures, but how did That's you loads. cope with... How did you cope with it? How did you cope with... Listen, my, my, my first business ended up tanking after the first dot-com ball burst, right? You know, so, so it's, it's part of the course. I am, I'm actually sometimes quite skeptical or scared of business people that, that don't admit to their failures. Because yeah. if somebody literally has never had a failure, they're either lying or they've been extraordinarily lucky, either, either of which is quite dangerous, right? So, so I think we have to acknowledge the fact that as, as business owners and as founders, you, you, you fail at different levels every day. You maybe make a bad decision. Maybe you lost the negotiation, you lost the customer. It's just part of life. It's part of the normal day-to-day of doing business. But unfortunately, because we've got this kind of very hyper-alpha, hyper-masculine culture, we just don't talk about it. We don't talk about, the, about our failures. You know, I, I see them personally as the medals. They're the badges of honor we have because winning is the easy bit. But dealing with failure well is actually the sign of, sign of a battle-hardened leader, I think. And, and it's interesting. We won't go into it, but it's an interesting, again, the difference in looking at failure both across the pond in America and here and, and how maybe one of the reasons people don't like talking about failure is what people will think of you. Is, and, and maybe there's that you know, cultural the social cost the social cost element is there and the social cost element is, is is pretty profound and i think it's also important to look at the cultural makeup of the entrepreneurship community because you know if we take the south asian diaspora for example 
you know, as we talk about people in the Indian community, Sikh community, Pakistani community, they're cultures in which actually, you know, you, you, the, the, the face that you project into your community is so important. And so failure has a much higher social consequence in, in South Asian communities than in other communities. And actually quite a large proportion of our, of our entrepreneurs here in the UK are from, you know, minority communities, often which they have a higher social consequence. So, so that, that is important. Like we have to tackle that part of it as well as the general notion of, 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 of good and bad failures. And let me ask you another question because um, it, it was in the book as well. So are you, I think I know what the answer is, are you a gut type of decision maker or do you refer a lot to data? So I, I heard, again, if I refer to what you said, the UK is known for having great financial sector great finance and 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 people find it difficult to raise finance in the financial markets here as opposed to america so a lot of people go to the nasdaq because they feel that the nasdaq is a lot more gut you know they sort of look at a, a business model and say this looks about right whereas here perhaps in the uk would do all the number crunching so are you more of a gut or are you a data-driven person I think you need to be both to the extent that the gut narrows the options, but the data tells you which option, right? So, yeah. so if I've got, let's say, I don't know, if we put it into the perspective of, of, of hiring, because that's something which I know all of the, the listeners and viewers of this will, will, will engage in, you might have 10 candidates, right? Now your gut feeling can get that 10 candidates down to five, but then it's yeah. the data that gets those five candidates down to one, right? If you're buying a business, whatever you're doing, that, like that's the metric. So, so I tend to use both because gut feeling is really useful, but it has to be validated with something real. The only exception to that actually is crisis management. So when, when things hit the fan, as they have done for many businesses during the pandemic, you often don't have time for data. You've just got to take a decision and live with it, right? And this is where actually giving yourself that slight level of compassion, which is, look, I took the best decision with the data I had at the time and the sensation I had at the time, and that's fine, is important because no one gets it right all the time. But for me personally, yeah, I look at it that way, which is gut narrows the options, but data tells me which option to pick. Interesting. And, and maybe that's what the people are asking of the current government. But there we go. That's another issue for another time. Let me, let me, let me pick something. And then I've got the last two questions. I love the line on page 119. And, and these are your words. Um, you have to adapt your leadership posture to deal with the crisis and make the next best decision you can with your team rather than the best strategic decisions for your team. I thought that was a, a very powerful sort of almost you wrapped up everything about leadership around crisis management, about emotional intelligence and just understanding what makes your team tick. So my last two questions are three pieces of advice you would give to somebody considering becoming an entrepreneur. So first of all is go learn as much psychology and philosophy as you can. Because okay. you need to have a deep understanding of how people in society work if you're going to win, right? And psychology and philosophy are probably the two disciplines where you're going to learn that, right? Second of all, figure out what you're not good at and get good at it. I was really not good at finance. I was really right. not good at accounting. I had to learn to get good at it, right? And, and third of all, thirdly, you've got to learn resilience, yeah. right? It might be that you do mindfulness. It might be that you do sports. Whatever it is for you as an individual that helps you become emotionally and physically resilient, do it. I think those three things will give you some excellent foundations for success in whatever field you're in. Final question. I've never asked this question before, but then I've never met someone who knows so many people in such powerful positions. So I would ask you, you just decided to have dinner and you had an opportunity to invite five guests out of your book. <laughs> Who would you invite out of your book? Because you have some amazing people that you've interviewed. So five people from the book. 
No, wow. all, oh, sorry. Does it have to be the all the people? I mean, I know you haven't included everybody in the book. There's a lot of people that you've interviewed outside of the book. So five dinner guests based on the interviews with them. It doesn't have to be from the book because I know you've interviewed a lot of people. So, so do you know this is this is going to sound odd, but I I would tend to I would try and pick guests who may have opinions that might disagree, like the scientist with the artist, the spiritual person with the within non-spiritual. So I would try and structure a table of people who have differing views, but huge intellectual capacity to support those views because somewhere in the midst of that discussion is the truth. And that's kind of the point of thought economics, which is, you know, I've, not everyone I've interviewed do I agree with. You know, people like F.W. Yeah. de Klerk, who, you know, who, who won the Nobel along with, um, you know, Nelson Mandela. You know, a lot of his views I didn't agree with, um, but they're valid and they need to be heard in the context of all the other views. So I think that is the secret to a good table, is not just a table of people that you idolize or respect, but a group of people who have the intellectual capacity to stimulate a discussion, because that's how we're going to get to truth. Like I'll give you a funny example. So um, my, my, my wife and some of my friends find it odd that, you know, a lot of them are kind of guardian readers as you can imagine. And they find it really odd that in the morning I'll read and maybe look at the guardian, but then I'll look at the daily mail, but then I'll look at yeah. CNN, but then I'll look at Fox. And I'm like, well, yeah. I'm not going to ever understand the truth unless I see yeah. all the sides of the argument, right? Like, if somebody get, calls me out in the street with, with a racist slur, as happens from time to time when you're this color, I will try, where possible, to ask them, so, so what have I done? Like, what made you say that? Because somewhere in between my position and their position is the truth. So, so that's the answer to the question. Right. So are you going to give me five or, 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 or do I just take <laughs> okay. that as a... No. Or should I take right. that as a... So, I, I know where you're coming from, but I just wondered if you... No. Have, okay. You... So that that is how I would do it practically. Yeah. But yeah. if you yeah. now give me my dream ticket, yeah. I am quite literally going to fill my table with just people who I think are awesome. Buzz Aldrin, for sure, yeah. because he was just incredible. Noam Chomsky, because he's been a bit of an intellectual idol of mine since, okay. since I was... <laughs> very, very young. Yuval Noah Harari, because I think there's no one else who's probably understood our anthropology better. Branson, because, you know, he's just cool as hell. He's Richard Branson, right? And then Hans Zimmer, because yeah. he's just an immense intellect in music. Yeah. You know, he, he still, to this day, gave me one of the interview answers, which really changed my life, which is, you know, I said to him, uh, what would what would the world be like without music? And he says, how sad would it be for someone to wake up in the morning and not hear music? And yeah. I just thought, wow. So that's my dream table. Do you know something? Your dream table actually epitomizes the type of person you are. And, and it's been fascinating. I mean, we've spoken about resilience. We've spoken about emotional intelligence. We've spoken about innovation. We've spoken about scale. We've spoken about how the military lead. We've spoken about crisis management. We've spoken about if there's weaknesses, trying to see if you can make them stronger. You've talked about psychology, philosophy. You've talked about all leaders now have to adapt, and they're the ones who adapt and are resilient, are going to get through. You've talked about the new world where really leaders have to now accept whether you're a micro or a FTSE, the role of communications, and you just can't ignore communications because everybody looks at that as their proxy for the brand. And you've talked about t uh, talent, and you've talked about having a vision and getting people online. And you've spoken about, uh, I think brilliantly, about putting something back into community, why it's important. And it's not necessarily a check for your skill set. And you've spoken about, I, th I thought it was brilliant when you said, well, actually, everybody's got a big, somebody there has got a bigger car and a bigger airplane and a bigger house. And will people remember by what you put back into your community than the size of the house and the 
So it's been fascinating. I knew it would be fascinating because when I read your book, I was blown out. Thank you. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm looking forward to one day actually meeting you. Likewise. If, if, if this one hour has given me an indication of the way you think, it, it's, it's very rare I'll meet somebody really well-rounded, has a good understanding of all kinds of things, philosophy, business, community, charity, uh, and it's been fantastic, Vikas, and uh, I very thank much you. look forward to catching up with you again when all this COVID, it looks like it's going to yeah. be over, but thank you for taking our time. Thank you so much for having Ho me. Congratulations on the amazing work you're doing with the magazine and the podcasts, no, no. and, you know, I, I really appreciate your interest and really appreciate the invitation. No, no, it's fantastic, and I hope you didn't miss any crappy TV programmes while you've been speaking to me. But thank, <laughs> thank you very much, and listen, I'll catch up with you soon. But once again, brilliant book, and it, it is a definite, definite read, Thought Economics by Vikas Shah. Thank you very much, and have a pleasant evening, what's left of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode, and if so, please do leave a review. It all helps in promoting the podcast. Oh, and by the way, have a great day. <laughs>